for Radio Blackout. I hope you enjoyed the jams trying to pump you up for your Memorial Day weekend. Don't forget that Demf is happening this weekend in Detroit at Hart Plaza, featuring a slew of acts from here and beyond. I hope to see you there. Um, up next is Living Writers with T. Hetzel. And uh, before we get into all of that, I am going to leave you with my ultimate Memorial Day jam. This song always signifies the start of summer for me. Ghost Town DJs, my boo. Up next here on Radio Blackout to close it out, Living Writers will follow that immediately afterwards. Again, thank you for listening. Hey, this is Kitty Walk broadcasting live. Enjoy your weekend. Some, some Beach party. One time for your mind and don't stop. I'm going to tell you like this. I got the number one most request in front of Ghost Town. It's called my boo, WSSD. Boy, you should know that I've got you on my mind Your secret admirer I've been watching
They seem to score in droves. Oh. You are round MVP. Yeah, man. Yo, Drew, I finally got round MVP. Round MVP. No way. That was some ownage. It's a good thing you got me as your wingman. Right. You mean when you threw that flash grenade at me? Whatever, man. Huge round. Seriously, great stuff. Finally earning round MVP takes determination. So will getting into college. I've got what it takes. All right, class. I'm going to pass back your tests. And a high score goes to... Brian. Oh, oh. yeah. High score, baby. Visit knowhowtogo.org to learn what you should be doing right now to prepare for college. Start taking the steps at knowhowtogo.org. I've got what it takes. So do you. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation, and the Ad Council. For more information in Michigan, visit knowhowtogomichigan.org. That's knowhowtogomichigan.org. Welcome. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Mattia Harvey. Mattia, thanks for joining me in the studio. Thanks for having me. And thanks for picking Greece to lead <laughs> Oh, it's a good way to beginning. Well, let's see. Before we get, to, well, let's talk, we'll talk a little more about Greece, yeah. but I'll read your short bio mm -hmm. just to begin with, okay, um, to kick us off here. Mattia Harvey is the author of two previous books of poetry, Pity the Bathtub, Its Forced Embrace of the Human Form, and Sad Little Breathing Machine, and a children's book, The Little General and the Giant Snowflake, illustrated by Elizabeth Zetchel. She teaches poetry at Sarah, Sarah Lawrence College and is a contributing editor to Jubilat and Bomb. She lives in Brooklyn. Oh, and I'd like to mention that one of the books, Modern Life, 
that we'll be talking about and maybe hearing some poems from um, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and a New York Times notable book, too. Um, so up there. So we've got some books in front of us. So, Mattia, Greece. <laughs> Now, yeah. why did you choose that to lead off the hour? <laughs> well, I chose it because I recently was listening to it again. Um, I listened to it all the time when I was a child. And in my first book, Pity the Bathtub, It's Forced Embrace of the Human Form, there are all these poems that have a, what I call a swivel line where, say, for example, um, the line would say, how are you are looking very nice today. So the you would be a swivel. And when it came out, um, there was a review in Publishers Weekly that said, Mattia is borrowing from a Turkish form, and I didn't know about the Turkish form. And I th sort of thought I just made it up by myself. And then when I was listening to Greece, I discovered that basically that same thing happens when they say we take the pressure and we throw away conventionality belongs to yesterday. Conventionality is a swivel word. So I think actually my five-year-old self was already listening, and that kind of has came out in the first book. And absorbing language. Yeah. And your five-year-old self, was that, were you living in England at the time, Mattia? I was, yeah, listening to it on the record player. <laughs> Not the phonograph. The phonograph. <laughs> Wait, what am I saying? <laughs> oh, so maybe we could do like a, a, a kind of a, a quick walkthrough. Of, mm -hmm. um, were you born then in England? Or um, was I was born in Germany, and then we moved to England when I was two. And we lived in England until I was eight, and then I moved to Milwaukee. So my parents are English and German. Oh, I see. Okay. And um, and your village was Marnhall? Mm-hmm. Marnhall, which is um, Marlot and Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Um, so it's hardy country. Ooh. Yeah. And do you do you return often to England or, or Germany? Yeah, or? to both of them quite a bit, because all of my extended family is over there. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, when one of the interviews I was reading... Um, that you've done, uh, you had said that a lot of your poems you feel like might have been influenced by the place of England, like those, those that childhood time. Mm -hmm. So it's so funny that you also were saying that even the language patterns right. of the swiveling yeah. uh, from that moment too. Yeah, it's strange how you discover that stuff later on. I mean, I don't think I was aware of it. And I hadn't thought about landscape until somebody asked me a question about it. And then I realized, oh, um, clearly, these I'm not writing about Milwaukee. You know, I never have. I haven't written a single poem with you know sprinklers and rabbits or so. Um, but are those to come? Are those I don't on know. deck or? I don't know because they're usually the landscapes and the poems are slightly imaginary. But um, so it's probably not. But maybe an imagined Milwaukee will come up at some point. I don't mm. know. Yeah, that would probably be. That, you can't go wrong with that. Right. But but it's also, I, I love that it's like this this time where you were being imprinted as a child, it mm -hmm. seems like. And that does seem like the natural place the imagination would, would go also for place yeah. or to evoke place. Right. And I think also I notice that when I write children's books, I write them in my head in an English accent. Really? Yeah, which is odd. <laughs> so, so would you um, would you mind reading a page from the Little General and the Giant Snowflake? I'll the, read it, but I can't read it in an English oh, accent. Oh come on! No, I can't. On, I don't do it anymore. I can't. But I'll read the first page. <laughs> we need a pot of tea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The Little General drank the last gulp of tea out of his teacup and turned off the television. He had been watching his favorite nature show, Order in the Wilderness. Today's episode was about lemmings, little animals that look like fluffy mice and live in the Arctic. The little general had been admiring them over his tea and biscuits because the announcer had said they would follow anything, anywhere. 
So he's having tea and biscuits. I mean, he's clearly English. Yeah. yeah. Bickies. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the diminutive. He's having McVitie's chocolate biscuits. Exactly. Ooh. <laughs> mm. Oh, no. Now I wish I could somehow... Um, get them for all of us here and for listeners out yeah. there too um and so this this was out with um tin house the little mm-hmm. general and the giant snowflake in 2009 mm-hmm. matia and um and so when you're writing these stories they're coming to the language is coming to you in an english accent like an english voice mm-hmm. i um, didn't realize it but when i write them now when i read them i realize that they are in an english accent and it seems to be dictating then even yeah. the subjects, the, right. the things that you're, you're the naming. Right. And you have more on deck in the children's book area, mm-hmm. um, right? Is yeah, that, there's, that a, a, there's a book called Cecil the Pet Glacier that's coming out next fall with Random House. And it's about a girl called Ruby Small who wants to be normal. And she has three dolls called the Jennifers that she carries around all the time. And she wants a normal pet, but instead... She goes on vacation with her parents in Norway, and a tiny glacier starts following her around. So that's that story. And and would you like to tell us how how that began? Like, how did that originate? How did that that was it? That was one, it when you were joking around with a a bio, a short. Yeah, bio? I was joking around with a bio. I think for the Volt magazine. I think you were supposed to write something silly, and so I said, "Matia has a pet glacier called Cecil." And then I thought, how I sort of longed to have a pet glacier. So then that book emerged. And, and did you think you were going to start writing children's books? How did this first one come to you? Was it a project that began with the the artist or with Tin House? Just said, "Hey, Mattia, how no. about a, a kids book?" No, no. Um, actually, Cecil is the first one that I wrote, um, but oh. it's just coming out afterwards, and um, that just happened. I just did it because I was interested in the pet glacier. Um, and I didn't like plan the best to do them. Form for it? Yeah, Mattia? it didn't seem like it was a poem. It seemed like. It was about a little girl and her dolls and the glacier, and it really felt like it was more of a little fable. And you're a photographer, mm-hmm. but did you did you have this book, um, <laughs> the one book that we don't have in front of us? I'm choosing for us to talk about first. <laughs> yeah. But no, is it illustrated it's or being illustrated or you by tra- Giselle Potter? Um, yeah. So for the children's books, I haven't I haven't done any of the artwork. I can't draw at all. I wish I could. Um, my sister's an artist, and she's an amazing oil painter and you know drawer. So um, I'd love to do a book that um, was a children's book with photography sometime. But right now I'm doing poems with photography. And that is on your website. So if yes. somebody wanted to go right now, you could, like listeners could mm-hmm. check it out, mattiaharvey.info. Yeah. That's it? Okay. Yeah. And then see some of your photographs. Yeah. And so I'm trying to, a lot of the poems in the next book, I think, are going to have photographs as titles and then poems underneath them so there'll be a little square box of a photograph and that'll be the title of the poem and then there'll be the poem underneath that's great so and literally photograph working as title Mm -hmm. for example would it be one of the ice cubes with the chairs at odd angles and then a poem underneath Um, those ones i haven't i haven't figured out whether those might just be photograph poems themselves or whether they're going to title anything so the ones that i have that have titled things are a tiny bit Well, let's see. Uh, I have a poem about a fever hospital. And so for the fever hospital, it talks a lot about this one clothesline. So I made a little wire clothesline and got miniature clothespins and uh, cut out tiny bits of a T-shirt and hung them on there and then photographed that. So that became the title of the poem. And when did you start with photography? Is that something you've been doing since you were a youth as well? Not really. No. Um, I Let's see. 
I tried to take a photo class at Harvard and it didn't work out very well. I was terrible in the darkroom. <laughs> Thank goodness for digital photography. Um, so I think, may, I mean, I always took strange photos of things, but then I really got serious about it maybe six or seven years ago and I took a bunch of classes and... Um, so strange photos of things, does that mean like a family Christmas would suddenly be from the perspective of the camera under the table or what, or, or is it yeah, just going it was, out to objects? It or? was usually arranging things. Like I remember when I was in grad school, um, making a little, um, photo series of this red bag and a scarf on a playground and it's sort of looking like them, pl they're playing on the playground. So that kind of thing. But I wasn't really doing it very seriously at that point. And now when I take photographs, it's almost always miniature things. So it's all in my office and set up with lights and um, it's more of a controlled environment. I'm not out in the world very much in the photos. I, I think, and how did that start? Do you think like this the close attention to something and that you're controlling mm -hmm. so carefully like to, yeah. to set it up? I because love, I know what you mean. I wish that we could beam a picture yeah, to listeners right now yeah. of at least that, that ice cube because it's slightly mm -hmm. melted. So it's right. in like it's changing shape right. of the artifact. Yeah. Well, you, you say. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I always loved miniatures. I always just have in that way. I think young girls often love miniatures and I like to pretend that the landscape was miniature when I was looking at it. And um, there's a Russell Edson poem about called Counting Sheep, which is about a scientist who miniaturizes these sheep so that they're um, rice-sized and they're in a test tube and all of the anxiety of that. Um, and I think I just started collecting miniature things. I have a whole gigantic cabinet of miniature animals. Um, so now when my nephew comes over, he's like, can we play with the tiny animals? And he gets them all out. But um, I started photographing them. And I, what I love about using a macro lens is that it looks so different when you photograph it. So what I was collecting were mostly very small, battered little animals so that they had, their expressions are really interesting when you look at them very close up. Mm. So Like distorted or Yeah, distorted or, or very sad or, yeah. Oh, well, that's that's lovely. It's fun, yeah. And so, and 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 you're kind of giving them more space, mm -hmm. not only attention but more space, yeah, too. Yeah. And then once I photograph them, I like to put them away. I sort of feel like the original object is uh, should be hidden afterwards. I'm not sure why that is. So different cabinet, or yeah, they go into the closet in, as opposed to the like working cabinet. Yeah, there are different different uh, boxes for them. I don't know what's going to happen to those ones. It's a little sad, actually. Or maybe your nephew can take them. Yeah, that's with a good him point, actually. Yes, he could. He could. <laughs> he should. <laughs> You've <laughs> solved that problem. <laughs> or no. Or maybe someday somebody will want them to go with your boxes of letters. They'll be like, where are those animals? And they'll be trying to search them. Search, them. And then they'll be on eBay. And then, <laughs> right. or wait, is eBay still around? Suddenly when I said that, yeah, I yeah. felt like a codger. Like it's already been, <laughs> you know. <out. laughs> no, eBay, you can often find some good tiny things. I bought a bunch of tiny chairs on eBay because when I started the ice cube photos with chairs I only had a few chairs and then I wanted to try different chairs the problem that I have with eBay is I often forget to look at the dimensions and so then a chair would arrive and it would be three inches tall so then I'd have to make a much bigger ice cube and my whole freezer is <laughs> full of them for months so now I've stopped with the ice cubes for a little while and but you are are you still taking the courses at the at, international I just finished um, finished Center? one in the fall yeah yeah, that's and, been fun. And how did it go with the taking a portrait of yourself? How did that end up? Um, I did. I didn't go to that class. 
Well, we're just going to have a portrait of you in in, in conversation today. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back today. Mattia Harvey, uh, her latest book from Grey Wolf Press, Modern Life. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in, welcome. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Mattia Harvey is here. Um, and thanks to Liz Wayson for engineering. And um, it's always great. Liz, Liz comes in, and there's like a, a blow pop. And what was the flavor of today, Liz? Watermelon. <laughs> It's probably that's Liz was rebelling because it's snowing again and it's, you know, <laughs> we're getting towards the equinox. We're supposed to have sunshine. Yeah, right? we should have some soon. So, Mattia, why um, the unicorns? I mean, I, I think it's a perfect choice. Well, I really I love hybrids. Um, I'm always writing about um, centaurs and cat goats and robot boys and at the moment I'm writing a lot about mermaids um so what I love about that song I don't actually like unicorns that much I don't think I'll ever write about unicorns maybe because they're too fundamentally girly or something but I love that that starts out um with I was born a unicorn and then goes kind of awry and how come all the other unicorns are dead and they're imagining the whole moment on Noah's Ark where the unicorn misses the ark and so that's why we don't have unicorns which is kind of tragic um and there's a line in it, too. Wait, we don't have unicorns? No. Well, I don't know. We do. We do, I'm sure. Um, I like when they say, we're the unicorns, we're more than horses. That's such a great line to me. Um, because there is like a complexity to the unicorn that there maybe isn't to the horse. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I really like um, imagined hybrids. And I think that's why I chose that particular one. I also like the idea of it being something very sweet and then taking something sweet and making it really harsh and changing the tone of what how that thing is perceived yeah because even there's the set up with the voices the two different voices singing right you know i write the songs and you're doing it wrong mm -hmm. you know this yeah collision there yeah well would you mind reading a mermaid poem for I'd us i'd love to so this is one of the new poems yes um does does this have um a book home yet like a like a like a, an it's, upcoming date? Uh, no, no date for this one. This book is taking a long time. It's all because I'm doing photographs and not sure what I'm doing. doing Children's books. And, yeah, so it's all over the place. But there does seem to be, I, I do have eight mermaids. 
So I'll read um, and The Matia, Homemade Mermaid. Could it, when, when you said you have cutouts, and do you mean that there'll be cutouts, like things that will also be accompanying this book of poems, yeah. like you s- mentioned with the, the other book with the photos as titles? So that's just all the same book, I think. Oh. It's all, it was going to be this very organized thing where every poem had an image title, but now things are going awry as always. So I've, I started doing some silhouette cutouts, um, a series where there's my moth mother, my octopus orphan, and those are just a silhouette of an octopus, and then my octopus orphan is cut out of it. Um, so, yeah. Well, so later on, note to self, yeah. we have to talk about the ABCD, ABCDRDNs. Oh, yeah. Yes? yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the homemade mermaid. The homemade mermaid is top half pimply teenager, bottom half tuna. This does not make for a comely silhouette, and the fact that her bits are stitched together with black fishing wire only makes the combo more gruesome. The homemade mermaid floods Mermag's Ask Serena column with postcards that read, Oh, why not half salmon or half koi? Signed, Frankenmaid. Sure, she's got the syndrome, loves her weird-eyed maker who began his experiments with Barbies and goldfish in a basement years ago, but she does sometimes wish he'd picked her prettier sister and left her tanning on tinfoil in the yard. When he lugs the homemade mermaid to the ocean, she always comes swimming back, propelled only by her arms. She really hasn't reconciled with that tale. The next day, he can usually be cajoled into playing a game of all-girl, They tuck her tail in a tank behind her, and her human half sits pertly at a desk. Whether she's playing secretary or schoolgirl, the game always ends when the mixture of glue and glitter that he's still perfecting for her tail sparkles gets stuck in the tank ventilation system, and the engine coughs to a stop. She sighs as he scoops out the glittery sludge. Tonight, again, he'll serve her algae with anchovies, and she won't complain. The one time he brought her fries, delicious fries, she took them as if in a trance and dipped them two at a time into the ketchup. The shared memories sprang to both their faces, two severed legs, blood everywhere, his hand gripping the saw. Thanks, Mattia. Sure. That poem goes a lot of places with Mm -hmm. a, a lot of emotions at different times. Yeah, the unwilling mermaid. All of the mermaids are slightly cranky and misbehaving. You know, they're, none of them are the f- feminine ideal of the mermaid. <laughs> there's a deadbeat one, there's a, um, a tired one who's hungover. You know, they're all kind of these uh, non-feminine ideals. Are they, do they all have makers or are some of them natural occurrences? Or um, is it yeah, all? this is the only one with a maker. There's a backyard mermaid who doesn't know where she comes from. Um, but the impatient mermaid, the inside-out mermaid, the deadbeat mermaid, the tired mermaid, and the straightforward mermaid are all just, they just exist. And are these like parts of selves and a way to talk about the self? And or Yeah, I don't know. Um, I had the straightforward mermaid poem came out in the New Yorker last summer. And a friend of mine emailed me and said, oh, what an excellent self-portrait. And I really had not thought of it as a self-portrait, but I think that's often the case when you're writing. I always write about things that are kind of imaginary or made up. I think some of the self often comes in. So, for example, in The Homemade Mermaid, um, there is one, like I often tuck in some tiny fact that's actually true. Like I did used to tan on tinfoil with also using Crisco. This was the Midwest and that was not a good idea. Um, so there's you know, there are little the tiny 80s. bits of me. Yeah, it was the 80s. And Crisco and tinfoil seemed like a great idea at the time. 
Um, so sometimes there are little moments like that in the poems, but um, I don't know. I'm interested in this series because I haven't had a series um, that deals with issues of femininity or feminism, and it's sort of sort of happening in the same way that the future of terror poems accidentally happened upon politics. So I don't really know where they're going, but sure, I'm sure there are parts of myself in all of them. And you're and you're fine with that. It's um a way to look at femininity mm-hmm. like that seems like something like fine to like you're ready to because I wonder if it's I don't know because with the the political poems that mm-hmm. are in modern life yeah um with the timing of that sort of uh was it after so was it after September 11th yeah. so that the yeah 9-11 had happened and I think um I started writing them maybe a year later um and it was I it was I was listening to too much radio and I would I was very anxious so every morning I would turn on the radio to make sure nothing new had happened, and I still do that to this day. I mean I think I think because um, my husband and I were you know went to the city that day and um, went to a cafe and everyone was looking behind us and we didn't notice we thought oh there's a movie going on or being filmed or something and so there was some time there before we realized what was happening, and I think that that kind of engendered this idea that I needed to know exactly what was going on in the mornings. And then there was so much vague dread being spread and the idea of the future of terror, um, these different terms that were sort of bandied about. Um, I wanted to try and make it less amorphous and pin it down in some way. And that's how those poems first started happening. I just wanted to write one poem called The Future of Terror. And then once I discovered that I wanted to write them by making lists of the words between future and terror in the in the dictionary, um, then suddenly I wrote twenty one of them. And so, when was that that you actually put that um, uh, constraint on it? Where you wanted to? Did did you know? Like you heard the phrase maybe on mm-hmm. CNN or yeah. somewhere, and then you thought, oh, those two words and then being sort of leaning towards um abc darian yeah i didn't really know anything about the abc darian um beforehand this is often how it goes with me like i'll do something and then afterwards i research and learn all about it or it's a turkish form right or it's a turkish form or it's actually greece who knows um so i think i had probably read harriet mullen sleeping with the dictionary but i don't i don't think i was consciously thinking about the abc darian form so it was just that i was really lost in how to deal with those two words and so i looked at them in the dictionary and then i suddenly thought well what if i just choose a spot on the page that's on the same page as future and go to the same spot in every page in the dictionary until i get to the terror page and so i would just make these word lists choosing a different spot on the page each time going forwards and backwards um that just happened, you know, naturally, organically, I guess. Would you read us one then so sure. that we could hear how that sounds? Because then there is, so that's interesting to know that you did, you, you had like a spot on the page itself yeah. rather than just using the, the begin, like the letter, the sound to guide you. Right. That's great. So they sound, they sound, they're pretty alliterative, as you can imagine. You'll hear that you go from, you know, G to H to K, you know, it goes... You'll hear it. This is them, the last one in the Future of Terror series. So it's the Future of Terror 11. Mm. And the speakers are soldiers in this one. From the gable window, we shot at what was left, gargoyles and garden gnomes. I accidentally shot the generator, which would have been hard to gloss over in a report, except we weren't writing reports anymore. We ate our gruel and watched the hail crush the hay we'd hoped to harvest. 
I found a handkerchief drying on a hook and without a hint of irony, pocketed it. Here was my hypothesis. We were inextricably We'd killed all the inventors and all the jesters just when we needed most needed humor and invention. The lake breeze was lugubrious at best, couldn't lift the leaves. As the day lengthened, we knew we'd reached the lattermost moment. The airlift wasn't on its way. Make-believe was all I had left, but I couldn't help but see there was no we. You were a mannequin and I'd been flying solo. I thought about how birds can turn around mid-air, how the nudibranch has no notion it might need a shell. Swell. I ate the last Napoleon. It said, onward, on the packaging. There was one shot left in my rifle. I polished my plimsolls. I wrapped myself in a quilt. So this is how you live in the present. Thank you. Thanks, Mattia. I'm so glad you read that one, because I think that's one of the many dog ears in this book. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> so... And so when you had words also, because there's words that are, are you're obviously um, calling upon that aren't like within the H's that you're, mm-hmm. you're using. Um, is, so what, how did you um, make the wiggle room for yourself? In um, I made the word list and then that sort of conjured the poem. And so I, I, as I was writing through it, I was, I was letting myself have a little leeway because otherwise I thought it would just be almost impossible to listen to and also impossible to write. So they were really sort of more like guideposts throughout this this trip that I was on. So it's not completely strict. It doesn't go in perfect order all the time, but it's sort of clustered with each letter. And that I feel like is necessary so that there's the, the, the making of it and not yeah. just the chance. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was really important to me that I wasn't using words... Um, I, I mean, I could choose which words I used, and I was choosing them according to the story that was emerging. Okay. So that, too, then. That is interesting. Because right. so, I had a much longer list, because there are many pages between Future yeah. and Terror in the Dictionary. <laughs> so each time that I went through, I would have this make a list of, you know, maybe 150 words. And then I would winnow them down as I went through. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, because I... It's a wonderful moment where you say, like, there's the, the Napoleon, right? And mm-hmm. then you have Onward. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> what yeah, is- it's exciting, the words that you get to use, because I think we have this vocabulary that we don't, we don't realize how limited it is. We know these words, but we don't use them all. So I'd never used quarterback sneak or nudibrank or all these other words. And now I got to, got to be sort of led toward them. And then it was really exciting to use them. And you use them in the, yeah, the, the way that you need it. Like that was the best word. Right, exactly. For that moment. Yeah. Oh, well, that's okay. Well, that's lovely. And, and before we take, go to a quick break, um, you were just, Mattia was, you just heard a poem from her book, Modern Life uh, with Grey Wolf Press. And I'd like to say thanks to Aaron uh, Kotke too at the moment uh, for sending books. Um, and you, your uh, photograph is actually the cover mm-hmm. art and and this is one of your when you're looking talk about hybrids it's yeah. a picture of dominoes mm-hmm. that have a natural half um would you like to say some a few words about the yeah sure the cover? so the dominoes i had just i wasn't thinking of making a cover or anything but the day before we were dealing with design issues i had i had noticed while having blackberries and milk that they looked sort of like dominoes and so I took a lot of pictures of uh, the blackberries in the milk, and then I cut them out and pasted them onto a set of dominoes. And I liked that they kind of seemed like melted. They were almost melted or kind of 
creepy and cellular. Um, so there was this division, but also this kind of blending that was uh, a little bit startling. So that's I just was making some blackberry and blackberry and milk dominoes, and then it turned out to work out for the cover. And did you say, hey, I have this? Yeah, this I sent image. it to them. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's one. And they said, oh yes, that's what we should use for the cover. I had another idea entirely for the cover, but this worked out, I think. Yeah, this is wonderful. And how? What a great, what a what a great press to work with, where yeah. you actually have control over what your book looks like. Yeah, they're fantastic there. Well, we'll take a short break okay. after singing Grey Wolf's praise. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we should howl now. No, we'll go to the break. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Mattia Harvey. We'll be back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the show, Mattia Harvey is here. We just heard a poem from her book, Modern Life, out with Grey Wolf Press. And now, that was a poem set to music. Cause did, mm-hmm. You collaborated with a composer, or was it, um, did they ask you for a poem, or how did he that actually, work? Yeah, yeah, he, um, Eric Moe is the composer who... Um, asked me if he could use this poem and write a choral piece, which I was thrilled to have him do. Um, so he, he was commissioned by um, the Volte Choir to, to do um, this piece and another one later on. And the reason I thought it was fun to ha- hear that now is that um, there's a country song in the poem, and my experience of hearing this was then that he'd actually created the country song inside the choral piece, which was such an amazing moment for me. So um, maybe should I read that poem? That would be great. Okay. It's a poem in which everything is governed by the theory of the baked Alaska, which means everything's hot on the outside and cold on the inside. Baked Alaska, a theory of. The moat simmers at 210 degrees. From his tower, the king watches, pleased, as a swallow tries to land on the water, squawks, and flies off. He believes in setting a good example. Oh, the flesh is hot, but the heart is cold. You'll be alone when you are old. His favorite country song, on repeat, is being piped through the palace. Downstairs in the dining room, the princesses gaze out the window at a flock of pigeons turning pink then black as they fly in and out of the sunset. The princesses put down their spoons and sigh. Baked Alaska for dessert again. The flambe lights up their downcast faces. When dinner is over, they return to their wing of the palace, the right ventricle. 
On a good day, they can play hearts for a few hours before they hear the king's dactylic footsteps. Damn the queen, damn the queen, coming down the aorta and have to hide the cards. They aren't allowed to adore him, so they don't. Just allow his inspections, checking their eyes for stars, their journals for heated confessions. Because he is a literal man, he never finds anything. But that night when he's gone, the princesses tiptoe down to the palace freezer. Sticking their fingers in sockets is no longer enough. Amongst the frozen slabs of beef, they sit in a circle on blocks of ice and watch the red fade from their lips and fingers, the frost on the floor creep up the heels of their shoes. Finally, when the skin is numb, the heat starts retreating into their hearts, and they can feel it. Love, love, love. Thanks, Mattia. It is lovely how you have, again, like it seems what your poems are doing are these moments where there's this humor and this complete, uh, like imaginative dislocation, and then... Um, shifting into something that like this longing or sadness or mm -hmm. something that's even very like uh foreboding or, or terrible mm -hmm. really like if they're being frozen somehow <laughs> yeah i think that i mean i it's strange to start to identify a strategy in yourself because you almost don't want to be aware of it but i do think that my tendency is to write about sad things and with some humor and some imagination it's almost like the cake is bitter, but the frosting is, you know, all the imaginative stuff is the frosting so that it makes you want to eat the cake, but then you have it in your mouth and you feel a little bit like, oh, that wasn't quite what I was bargaining for. So I think, I think those might be my things, like melancholy and humor together, or melancholy and play. And, and why? I'm not exactly sure. I think one of the reasons may be that in order to write something that feels true and difficult, I need to distract another part of my brain. So for example, with the um, Future of Terror series, which I think is the darkest work that I've written, I think um, I couldn't have written that if there weren't part of me that got to play with words and be excited about alliteration. It's almost as if you know you distract your brain and then you can deal with your heart at the same time, I think. Yes. Because the humor lets it go deeper mm -hmm. sometimes, or the distraction. Yeah, it hopefully. Up into a, a deeper level. Yeah. And what was it like to hear when you heard the music and what had been done with the poem? Like, was it at all hard to let go of it, or was it, or, or what was that experience it sitting there and like hearing it? It felt very transformed. I mean, it, there's nothing stranger than seeing 20 people saying your words, singing your words at you. That's a very bizarre feeling. I mean, I sort of wanted to pass out. But I also, it's also interesting how like the repetition of the choral arrangement makes different things come out. So for example, at the end of that piece, they repeat the word love like 35 times or something. And it, and each time it's, there's a lot of soprano and it's sort of poignant and yearning and it's transforming. And so it's almost like they took, um, he took this, um, you know, flat poem that's on the page that lives in the imagination, but made it audible in a completely different way. So it felt like it was another dimension. It's really, it's a really a gift when someone does that with your work. It's the same thing when you work with an illustrator and suddenly the world comes to life visually. I mean, I really enjoy that collaboration. So with the little general mm -hmm. and the snowflake, when you saw the pictures, 
because there could have been a chance where you were like, no, that's not what the ge- little general looks like. <laughs> well, actually, you've had, a, you've had a relationship with him. Right. I did have well, a relationship with him. And luckily, I was allowed to choose Elizabeth. And um, she was really collaborative. So actually, we went through, I think we went through 20 little generals because I did have a really specific idea of what he looked like. And finally, I found a picture of him. Uh, he was a British winner of a mustache contest. And so that was how I managed to convey to her who he looked like. Um, so she, I mean, that's not usual with children's books. Usually you give up the, the text and the illustrator does it independently. And I think that's what's going on with Cecil the Pet Glacier right now. Giselle Potter has it. But I've already seen the sketches and I love her work, so I'm not that worried. But with this, it was really fun because Elizabeth and I were almost discussing every detail. Like, what, what does Sergeant Samantha want to wear? And so we would look up Versace military jackets and email images back and forth all the time. And so it was great fun. And so, and do you think that was Tin House that made that pot? Like, that's why it's maybe the norm for Tin House, where they let you oh, choose someone? Oh, no, it's someone, actually, the or? book was supposed to come out with Soft Skull. And then oh. Soft Skull did this horrible thing, dropping it a week before it was supposed to be published. So we had oh, made, no. had the book all finished, and they had um, joined up with another press, and everything went to hell. So oh. um, actually, Tin House took it on as a finished book. They did some redesign, and I think they made a very beautiful book. But So that was unusual that we got to work together in that way. And because I wonder if now that you, now you'll have a couple of children's books, do you think then you could say, well, I would like to work with Elizabeth, like Elizabeth again? again yeah. or, because you've... I don't know. That's, that, that world is very new to me still. I don't, you know, I know the poetry world. But the children's um, book the publishing. Children's book world is a, is a lot larger and more, um, there's more money involved. And um, But at the same time, I've worked with such great people that so far I've had a really great experience. So it does seem to take a really long time. Um, so I don't know. We'll see what happens. I would love to work with Elizabeth. We actually have started collaborating on a um, an alphabet of absurd birds. Yes. I wanted to ask you yeah. about that. <laughs> Um, we haven't found a publisher yet, but we've just, it's just called These Birds Don't Fly, and it's all, you know, A is for the auk who loves to talk, and they're all birds who are not flying but doing silly things like playing with yo yos and things. But, and you're making up names for birds? No, the birds are actual birds. Are they really? Yeah. yeah. All existing now, like in the in yeah. Audubon's book. Yes. Yeah. The birds are, the birds are real. So she's doing these very realistic drawings, but then of them in crazy situations. So there's, I think E is the is for the emu stuck in the glue, and she has an emu with his little foot in the in the Elmer's glue, and it's pretty fun. Okay. Yeah. And are there some birds that could fly, but because of what they're what's written about them, mm-hmm. that's the reason they can't fly. Right. They're okay. they're just they just don't fly. They're doing these other things. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> the robin's on a a rampage or, yeah. or something. Whatever. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, well, that sounds great. I can't wait to see. Well, anyone listening, you can contact, you can go to <laughs> matiaharvey.info um, and express your interest in, in publishing These Birds uh, Don't Fly. Um, <laughs> and well, you also, let's see, so you're writing a, a bit of everything mm-hmm. then really. Um, when did you start writing poems, Matia? Because that um, seems like something that you feel rooted in. Yeah, in, in... I started writing poems when I was four, I think. And I wrote them... I mean, I wrote terrible poems. I wrote lots of haiku and little rhyming poems. And You wrote haiku when you were four? Yeah. I mean, because I, I learned about them, and so I thought, oh, I'll try these. I mean, I'm sure they weren't very good, those haiku. Although, you know, sometimes the kids can write the most amazing poems. Like, I had a friend sent me a poem by a child, and it was called, Sadness is a sky blue mountain inside the house. 
I mean, there's not really a better poem than that. I wasn't writing poems like that. So I wrote just sort of bad stuff for a long time, but I loved rhyming. I was very annoying to my sisters. I would speak in rhyme all the time, and they hated it. And then when I went to college, I took my first poetry class and got my first sense that you could actually be a poet. I didn't know that was possible really anymore. So, well, because in high school, in the, well, probably you're reading a lot of people who are dusty and dead. Yeah, and not that much poetry either. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we never, yeah. we didn't have any creative writing classes or any of that stuff. So, so that's when it shifted for you. And who, can you remember who you were reading? Because it was at Harvard and what? In my, in my in my first class, at, yeah. Um, I think the first I was took a class with Henri Cole. He was my first teacher, and he was a wonderful teacher. And I think that the first stuff that we read was Elizabeth Bishop, and I loved all of her work. Um, and he just he was he would he gave us you know maybe six poems a week, and we would talk about them really intensely. And the fact that he was living as a poet and teaching sort of opened my eyes to the fact that that was actually a possibility. There was nobody in, I didn't know about Milwaukee's poetry scene. Milwaukee actually has this amazing bookstore called Woodland Pattern, and there are all these poets there, but I didn't know that as a teenager growing up there. So it took me going to Boston and meeting these other teachers. And then you then you chose to get an M- MFA. Mm-hmm. And and then a few years where you were interning, because I'm just trying to sort of chart yeah. a little bit of your your history, because mm-hmm. then you worked, did you intern or work for Jubilat or what? No, um, let's see. After I got my, um, first I went and worked at Columbia University Press for a year after college. Then I went to the MFA program. Then I did an extra year in art history there. And then I went and worked for a friend of mine at NYU as the assistant to the chair of the film department. And then I worked oh. at Bomb Magazine doing grant writing. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then teaching came later. And that's at Sarah Lawrence. Yes. And you're living in Brooklyn. To recap your earlier bio. Right, yes. Wonderful. Well, yeah. <laughs> so that was it, sort of in this miniaturized yes, version. Exactly, that was like the a, ice cube version. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what would be packed in? Take a photo of that. <laughs> right. right. Well, we'll take a short break, and then we'll come back um, to hear more with Mattia Harvey, her her book, Modern Life, and maybe we'll hear another couple poems, maybe, mm-hmm. Mattia. We'll be right back. Now it's time for our wrap-up. Let's give it everything we've got. Ready? Begin. Artificial amateurs aren't it all amazing. Analytically, I assault, animate things. Broken barriers bounded by the bomb beat. Buildings are broken, basically I'm bombarding. Casually create catastrophes, casualties, canceling cats. Got the canopies collapsing. Detonate a diamond tank, daily doing dope. Demonstrations, Don Dada on the down low. Eating other editors with each and every energetic, epileptic episode, elevated etiquette. Furious, fat, fabulous, fantastic. Flurries of funk, felt feeding the fanatics gift got great global goods gone glorious getting godly in this game with the glorious hit them high hella hype historic oh hey holocaust hymns hear them holler at your homeboy. welcome back you've got living writers i'm t hetzel and today on the program matia harvey matia um that was that was another song choice of yours mm-hmm. that was chosen because of the abc darius in that one that's um alphabet aerobics by black Alicious. and it's all it's absolutely all aaabbb with you know maybe the tiniest in between words so there's a there's a version of an abc darian that's just you know i think it's incredible and did you listen to that um, afterwards afterwards, oh, afterwards when i was researching okay. not <laughs> not when and cuz i had read um you've got there online there's a, an essay um Don Dada on the down low getting godly in his game mm-hmm. between and beyond play and prayer in ABC Darius. Yeah. 
And that that's a quote from the from that song. So, yeah, I wrote an essay on the ABC Darius after I'd done these poems. And so then I discovered all of these precedents and discovered that song. And and so and why did was it something that you were just doing anyway? And so you like like investigating or researching this the structure that you that had chosen you. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. then you thought, well, I might as well like articulate the thoughts. Like, or was it something you were writing in a notebook it and was, it became an essay? I know. I think I was asked to write an essay on it, and then I thought, oh, well, now I have to really figure out what's what I think about this and what I'm, you know, what it has meant for me. And I was excited to kind of delve into that history of the Abusterian poem because I didn't know very much about it. And now you do. And now I do some. Yeah. <laughs> At least the essay knows. And well, let's see. Well, you mentioned a, another poem before the fever hospital. Yeah. W- would you mind reading that? Sure. So this is the one that's titled with an image of um, the clothespins. In the fever hospital, the elevator moves like a bead of mercury between floors. The higher the floor, the higher the fever. Down here, we're allowed cards, but the bouquets are whisked up and away to where the peonies' pinks pinch their way into already blooming cheeks. Roses' reds flood the invalids' flushed faces. Down here, only black and white movies, and then they're always about deserts. They want us burning. There's no pushing of ice chips past our purple lips. We're squeezed into tight silk pajamas under more wool blankets than can possibly be necessary, our heads on velvet pillows so they can get an imprint of our sweat. If it forms the outline of an animal, an orderly scuttles down the hall keening. They wear only the most practical shoes. We know that if we're promoted, the nightmares will only get worse, but we yearn for a top-floor view, just one bit of blue, a chance to see the clotheslines flagged with handkerchiefs as a clothesline and nothing more, before the hallucinations begin, before the clothesline morphs into a giant gap-toothed grin and the mirage milkers tiptoe in. Thank you. Sure. There's creepy mirage milkers. <laughs> I like, I, I, that was just one of those... Um, poems where I had an idea of like what if we really if fever hospitals wanted to encourage fevers and so they were really trying to get people to get hotter and hotter and then sort of milk the mirages in some way it's an odd one and how do you think was that something how do you think that idea came to you are you writing out like like notes in a journal or walking around and ideas come to you or it seems like you work so much from the visuals these images like I think often, often the, the poem comes in terms of a pair of words. Like, I think I just thought of a fever hospital, but then I head into the images and imagining what it's like. So that's, that tends to be how it And happens. the dark side. Right, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was quite grim with the, the velvet um, pillow yeah. with the imprint. Mm-hmm. And if there's an animal, there'd be keening. Yeah. <laughs> I like how you just, you just don't, you're like, you can never take it too far. <laughs> <laughs> and and so when you when you were little and you were mm-hmm. four and you started writing your poems mm-hmm. did you um like how did that happen because did you just did someone encourage you did you said you learned about the haiku yeah did, did you also I had that book Robert Louis Stevenson's A Child's Garden Book of Verses and oh, I yes. remember there I remember I think this is when I fell in love with poetry it's weird to be able to remember this but I remember reading the poem, In Winter I Get Up at Night by Night and Dress by Yellow Candlelight, by Summer Quite the Other Way I Have to Go to Bed by Day. And I remember thinking, at whatever age I was, maybe I was six, 
um, thinking that expresses it so incredibly precisely and so economically. And I think that's how I fell in love with it. Like as a child. Yeah. As a child. Yeah. I was thinking that's (laughs) it. I mean, that's that is saying it perfectly. You know, I think I'm often frustrated by conversation because you can't be as articulate as you can in a poem. I really like to craft things beforehand. So I would have liked to type up my answers to this interview beforehand. (laughs) Wouldn't be very spontaneous, though. But, But I love that you can remember that moment. Yeah. And 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 so then you just you you just kept you didn't give up on poems. You kept mm-hmm. writing them, mm-hmm. even if you were writing them alone mm-hmm. and um, not really and not even reading a lot of poems by the sound of it. After, right. Or did you after the Robert? The some. Stu- I mean, I read some, but it was very it was a very spotty education of just what was around the house, you know. But my parents are both big readers, so there are a lot of books. But I think I probably I read many more novels growing up than I did books of poems. And did you also write? short stories. Yes, then. I wrote some very bad short stories. Yeah. And plays. No plays. No. I haven't tried plays. Ooh. Yeah. No, I probably shouldn't try plays. Soon. I think I've divided myself into enough pieces already. <laughs> oh, well, well, let's talk a little bit about the upcoming book, mm-hmm. The Speaking Erasure. Pieces, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. The yeah, pieces, not things that are disappearing necessarily, because right. there's always something that's still present. Yeah. Um, it's going to be coming out later this year with mm-hmm. McSweeney's. Yeah, it's coming out in May, and it's a book called Of Lamb, and it's an erasure of a book called A Portrait of Charles Lamb. And basically, I found this um, biography of Charles Lamb for $3 on a table outside some bookstore, and I had told my grad students to try writing an erasure, so I felt that I should also try doing one myself. And then I became obsessed with it because, of course, Charles Lamb, well, Charles Lamb's story is so interesting because his sister Mary suffered from madness, and they had to keep a straitjacket in the house, and she stabbed the mother and killed the mother, and there's just this tragic but also beautiful pairing between the two of them. But that actually, again, this is all comes later. So I do the erasure and I discover that Mary and Lamb is on every page. And so then it became this kind of retelling of Mary and her little lamb, except that Mary and her lamb um, fall in love and think about having children and they go to the madhouse. And so it's a little it's dark and funny at the same time. The illustrations are really brightly colored, but then some of the stuff in the erasure is quite dark. Um, And then, of course, after that, then I fell in love with Charles Lamb and read all of his stuff and... um, there's a great biography, a double biography of Charles and Mary Lamb. And so it's, I seem to go backwards in that way. Like I do a project and then I learn about it afterwards. And what if you, would you ever think about then doing another erasure of the same book now after experiencing well, all of that? I did so many versions of each page that I basically did that. So, um, I think I did it for about three years. Just so- how did you do? So you did you photocopy the page so you could keep messing with no, it? No, I would. Un, well, first I started underlining, and then I would write ones in the corner, and then I started having to. I had so many that I had to start typing them up for each one, and then I started winnowing it down. Um, so the book with McSweeney's is a selection of a hundred of them. Um, I think the book is 180 pages, and so the version that I have at home is the whole book um, whited out. Um, I spent a lot of time with whiteout. It's very soothing. It's a good, good thing to do. Um, was it the the actual? Was it the tape or was it the? Like no, the paint? I actually at the hotel today they were using the tape, and I've never seen the tape in action. I was all excited, and I couldn't quite explain to the woman why I was so excited to watch her erasing the date on my hotel card. But um, I used the. I used. She the, probably just was like poet. Right, <laughs> right must be a poet. 
I used the regular little brush ones, um, but I did have to switch from the really toxic one to the water-soluble ones because I kept getting too high on whiteout and forgetting to move the car and getting big tickets. So now I'm only with the water-soluble, even though it looks a little bit less nice because you can see the, through it a bit more. And that might have changed the project, too, if you had right. stayed with the, the Right, fumes. it would have been crazier. <laughs> right. So after I was done with it, I then contacted Amy Jean Porter, who's the, the woman who illustrated, or it's not really illustration. She really has independent, imaginative acts of... So, for example, if the, um, if the erasure said, lamb in the midst of the lake destroyed the rainbow, she would then take that and she would transpose lamb and put him into a bathtub and have him eating a rainbow shower curtain. So the images are, you know, almost like another interpretation. Very much her, her own. Yeah, very independent, which was exciting. Wow. Yeah. And so many ways to take the story because it's so, it's so it's not that she's erasing, but she's in a way erasing some of the intention that you may have right, imagined right. or pictured. Yeah. Yeah. She's tilting it in a different direction. So there's almost, yeah, there are all these different tilting versions. And is there a time for it? Because I think because of the book you chose mm -hmm. in my mind, I made it sort of uh, an archaic project, like that you were right. going to go back in time with the project. <clears throat> and even if it was um, Mary falling in love with her lamb, it would yeah. still be taking place back in that same time period. Right. But then when you said shower curtain, I thought, right. oh. It's actually, no, it's actually the, her Im uh, images are pretty modern. So they're this is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, the 25th of May, 2011. In San Francisco, I'm Danny Wood. Coming up on the newscast, in Washington, lawmakers are poised to renew provisions of the controversial Patriot Act, despite resistance from civil libertarians. We go to Gaza for reaction to the Middle East speeches by President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu. Obama's speech ignored the matter of settlements. Uh, Israel keeps widening uh, their settlements while we are asking to stop the settlements. And the Securities and Exchange Commission adopts new whistleblowing rules for reporting financial wrongdoing. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. Clashes between local Tunisians and refugees housed at a camp along the Tunisia-Libya border erupted yesterday. Violence left the camp in ruins and as many as 10 people dead, according to refugees. Today, government officials toured the site of the violence. FSRN's Marine Olivesi journeyed to the camp and files this report. The Tunisian defense minister visiting Shusha camp